OSL is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We currently have a busy event schedule and will be attending many conferences in the next few months, including ESTRO, UKO and many of the regional study days. For a full list of where to meet us, please do get in touch. As well as our event schedule, we also have a busy product portfolio that has recently been updated to. This includes Sky Factory for state-of-the-art visual LED lighting. We have MyQA Ion and IonRT from IBA for automated patient-specific QA for photon, electron and proton radiotherapy. And we also have MR Box from our AI suppliers at Therapanacea, allowing AI-powered MR-only workflows for a more consistent and high-quality planning pathway. For SGRT, we have a vast range of open-faced thermoplastic masks, as well as surface-guided compatible clear bolus from ClearSight, preventing any risk of interference between the skin surface and your SGRT solution. And as always, do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable team. Our account and clinical specialists are from a radiotherapy and physics background, and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Hi, my name's Laura and I work at Convensys as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We will open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensys.co.uk. therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 94. My name's Jane McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Namanjaka Anderson. Hi everyone. A big thank you to our last guest, Lindsay Allen, who talked about her role as a Macmillan oncology dietitian. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're pleased to introduce our guest, Samantha Bostock, who will be discussing her role as a therapeutic radiographer and her passion around supporting patients with late effects. So welcome, Samantha. How are you this evening? Hello, thank you. Yes, I'm really well. Thank you very much for inviting me along. The sun is shining. Um, it definitely feels like spring moving into summer now. So that's that's nice for when we're recording later on in the evening. Um, so Samantha, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and also your current role and maybe a bit about your career pathway? I will. Thank you very much. So I actually qualified an awful long time ago in 1995 um, and spent a few years working, developing my skills as a a treatment radiographer, and then um, in about 2000 qualified as a review therapeutic radiographer um, and got that master's module as part of my MSc. So from from that point on, when originally we had doctors reviewing patients on treatment, we developed our own treatment service, a review service, which was just um, myself originally, and then we built that up with a team of radiographers. Um, so where I work at Cheltenham, we we purely have uh, radiographers running on treatment review, which is great. Um, I went on to do my non-medical prescribing qualification, which was really useful, amongst other um, sort of study days, qualifications, you know, extra bits and pieces. Um, and then over the last few years with my manager, we've been looking at trying to develop a, a local late effects service because I think 
we've all become more aware as patients are living longer um, that you know the incidence of, of late effects and long-term effects is 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 quite high and there are some people out there who are really struggling so um, a few years ago we tried to get a business case up and running to get funding um, couldn't manage that so our local charity called focus which is part of our hospital charity kindly funded me a day a week for a couple of years to pilot that so so that's where this started we we ran that pilot service and then worked along with our southwest regional colleagues to approach Macmillan for funding for our late effect services and that and that's where we are now so there's myself in Cheltenham and we have radiographers in Bath and Bristol um, and a navigator working to support the Taunton service so we're all part of the Macmillan funded service but then we've also got three peninsula departments Exeter, Torbay and Truro who have all um, given some radiographer time to support this as well so so it's amazing really I think we're we're the first of our kind within the country in terms of a regional late effect service so we're uh, we're all very excited and working very hard to try and develop this over over the two years um, and collecting lots of data su to support business cases then for continued funding. Why did you want to be a review radiographer? I think anyone who listens to me I'm very biased and say it's the best oh. part of the job but why did you want to do it especially if you were setting it up almost by yourself yeah i did at the at the time um it was back really when i think it was the first master's module qualification that was available through oxford brooks university to become a, a review radiographer and i was in the right place at the right time um, a radiographer called marilyn hammock who was working at um, oxford brooks at the time was trying to develop that master's module um, because there were review services sort of scattered around the country in various forms. So it just captured my imagination. But I think I've always, always loved working with patients, working with people. Um, and I think it's where my skills lie. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, love treatment, love the technical side of things as well. And, and, and that also comes into play as a review radiographer and a late effects radiographer. You need that knowledge of imaging, treatment plans, um, in order to be able to, to, to look at and, and, you know, and do your job in managing side effects. But yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm just quite passionate about, about that, that side of the world. I think anyone who is our generation as well, Samantha, would know that the time that you used to have to wait for an oncologist definitely drove the service development of the radiographer review because they just weren't available and you know there were often times that patients would be waiting for hours to see an oncologist even though actually we knew what the intervention was or potentially how we could help and support that patient but it was very much around kind of that process and pathway that that patient was typically going to go through so it's great that we have radiographer reviews now that kind of takes that away a little bit i'm Absolutely. going to i'm going to a hot potato out there though oh, go on. Go do on. you feel that having radiographer review specialists now means that treatment radiographers are losing some of the skills that they possess in supporting patients with some of the advice and support it doesn't work like that in our department. When I set up the on-treatment review service, I was absolutely adamant that that wouldn't be how it worked and we wouldn't be de-skilling our on-treatment radiographers. So 
um, how we work is our on-treatment radiographers um, first-line manage side effects. They give day-to-day advice. Um, patients talk to their treatment radiographers because they know them, because they've built up a relationship. And that's part of why most of us become a therapy radiographer, therapeutic radiographer, because um, we work with people. That's what we do. So actually, it was really important not to take that away from treatment staff. Um, and so we set up our review service so that the first line management is done on treatment and then patients get seen in review for that extra specialist support and information. Um, and going back to what you said about oncologists never being around, but you know, they're doing other things. Actually, we have a perfect skill set for this role, um, review and late effects. Often you'd be running around trying to find a junior doctor from the ward who would then ask you what you wanted. Um, same with the non-medical prescribing course. Um, you know, we have the skills to be able to do this. So, so yeah, so I mean, I get your point. And I think maybe if you work in other departments, you may feel that you're de-skilled because of, of your review team. But um, no, that's not how we run things. I think it's the culture because, it, again, it goes back to historically treatment radiographers have been viewed or well, we've been viewed as button pushers. So actually talking, we don't, might have a nursing team who would handle side effect management. And that's where on treatment review, like if you go back into some of the papers in early 2000, that's where it kind of started from where yeah. the nurses would sort of try and progress some of the review radiographers, well, progress some radiographers, sorry, into treatment review. I think with the prescribing, physical assessment, and obviously consultant rads now, yeah, it's amazing. But I think, as you said, it's about how the leadership or the team want to develop all the treatment radiographers. So I know, Joe, you, when you lecture, every single one of your students will know everything about radiotherapy, whether it's technical or side effects. And I think that's where it starts. So, that, that, yeah, that, that was good for me. Yeah, no, absolutely, I agree. I mean, I don't know that many people want to become a therapeutic radiographer so they can just push buttons. Um, you know, it's we're here for the patient, aren't we? And I think I've always, always found that I think it would be quite demoralising if you were a radiographer, your patient asked you a question about a side effect and you had to say, well, actually, no, you've got to go and talk to someone else about that. That's not really how it works. So, yeah, absolutely on, on board with that. And And, you know in terms of therapeutic radiographers as a profession managing radiotherapy side effects acute or late as opposed to other professionals there has to be an element of multidisciplinary working you know into professional working but actually there's no one else who can see a patient in a late effects service or on treatment and look at their on treatment imaging look at their planning put everything together come up with a full picture and actually work out what's going on and what we need to do about it so from a late effects perspective then, Sam, what what have you done to develop your knowledge and skills? Well, I think for me, quite luckily, my background um, really helped as a review radiographer. So I'd got an awful lot of skills like you were, you know, alluding to the um, physical assessment, history taking, advanced communication skills, non-medical prescribing and many, many years of experience as well um, certainly helps. But um, it's really difficult, it has proved difficult because there isn't one set course or one set master's module out there that will fully equip anyone to be fully competent in managing all late effects. It just doesn't exist. So as a team, we've all completed the Sheffield Hallam um, module about um, supporting 
patients who've had a cancer diagnosis, which has been really helpful. We've um, basically doing other other courses, study days, gaining skills, competences within the workplace, depending on, on what's needed, really. So it's been a case of kind of looking out there for what's available and trying to pull it all together. As a team, we're looking at um, work-based learning module, which will hopefully accredit what we've learnt and put that towards some kind of sort of slightly more specific qualification. But it, it's it's quite difficult, really, to be honest, in terms of getting academic qualifications um, at the moment. So hopefully at the end of this two years, there will be something because that's what we're trying to trying to develop in terms of education as part of the project. Samantha, can anyone access that? I'm just thinking about if you had a band five therapeutic radiographer who was really keen to get involved in in late effects or even you know a nurse who qualifies works um within acute oncology and then thinks actually i would i would really like to dedicate my time to become a a clinical nurse specialist do you do you anticipate that actually you do have to get a significant amount of clinical experience first or do you think it is something that people can start to specialize in earlier on in their career that's a really loaded question isn't it I mean, I'm quite old school and think that actually, I can't speak for other professions, but in terms of us as radiographers, there needs to be a certain amount of experience gained before you can go off to specialise. Because, you know, I, I did my time as a, as a radiographer, as an old, you know, a then senior two and a senior one on set. And the experience and the knowledge that gives you is invaluable. Whereas if you're going in after one or two years experience to try and specialise in something like this, I think you're missing out on a certain amount of education and development, maybe. Um, but hopefully at the end of the project, we'll have, um, you know, sort of come up with maybe a pathway. There are path, you know, you can. There are pathways towards consultant practice and specialist practice, aren't there now? So hopefully, the, the late effects role will will fit in with that as well. I suppose it goes back to kind of on treatment, you know, on the treatment floor, um, how important it is to highlight some of the late effects. So obviously, when patients finish their treatment, we'll give them a discharge letter normally, and we, I mean, technically speaking, we should have on those discharge letters around late effects. And obviously, I think starting with the consent forms, we now have national consent forms. How important do you think those kind of documents are for this? Yeah, very important. Um, and and I think information giving and, and consent is really, really interesting issue, isn't it? Because like you said, the new RCR consent forms have got late effects on them. There's no getting away from that now. Um, at Cheltenham, we, we well, within the southwest late effects service we've developed a late effects leaflet so at Cheltenham we're giving that to all patients at the end of their radiotherapy so they they're kind of empowered with that information um signposting to all of the Macmillan late effects information as well so it is really really important but part of the data we're collecting with the within, within the project is looking at whether patients believe they were informed about late effects when they went through the treatment so some of my patients had radiotherapy a year ago some of them had radiotherapy 15 years ago so you know it's going to be quite subjective really but a lot of patients are saying to me that they they probably were told but they don't remember they didn't take it on board at the time some are saying they weren't told 
maybe they were, maybe they weren't. You know, it's really difficult. They're, they're facing a cancer diagnosis and also consenting for active treatment, which is going to get rid of their disease. So to try and fully inform them about the potential for quite debilitating late effects is really tricky. And patients already say they have a lot of information um, and talk about information overload, don't they? So I think it's really interesting. They should Patients should be fully informed and I think it's something in terms of late effects we need to kind of do all along the pathway. We need to feed into prehab, during treatment, post-treatment. We need to try and set up some pathways so that we can identify patients earlier and, and get them accessing late effects services. Um, and information giving is the way to do that. But it's such a personalised thing. It's, it's tricky, isn't it, I think? I'm going to throw a hot potato in as well, Sam. Another one. We're all about the potatoes tonight, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the National Radiotherapy Consent Forms from the Royal College of Radiologists came out last year. Yep. Fantastic, standardising what exactly what radiotherapy needs. However, the responses I'm sure you've had through some patients or viewers in your clinics and what we get through RadChat is, yes, I've signed a consent form, but that doesn't mean they went through it. Yes. I think that's quite a big thing to highlight that, yes, when we sign we get patients to sign things but exactly as you said information overload or also they're all in english so language barrier people won't understand it but also some of the words they're not going to understand it the percentages are great i think that helps to highlight when things might occur and might not occur but even a one percent risk for a patient is still too much yeah so yeah i, I don't know how you feel having kind of qualified as you said, in 1995, you've seen it all change and progress quite a lot more than probably I have. But yeah, yeah just wondering what your thoughts are with my hot potato. Well, thank you for your hot potato. I think going back many, many years, um, there were even bigger issues around consent. You know, you, you could guarantee patients weren't necessarily what we would consider fully, fully informed about their treatment uh, um, and side effects. But you're, you're right, you know, it's a piece of paper that's been signed at a particular point in time. You know, it's, its value very much depends on the conversation that goes around that, doesn't it? Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure you've got thoughts on how you would change that. It's um, probably a bit bigger than, than us within this conversation. Um, I think it could yeah. be as well about the fact that if I'm a patient signing a consent form, as I have done, unfortunately had to sign lots of consent forms over the years, actually you don't necessarily take on board what that could mean for you and how it could impact on your quality of life. If you've never suffered with diarrhoea consecutively for a long period of time, how do you know that that's actually going to be so bothersome for you that is going to significantly impact on your quality of life until you've kind of got that lived experience. And I think that's sometimes where kind of the peer support groups come in really handy for patients, mm. where they are able to kind of talk to their peers um, around kind of some of the side effects that they're experiencing. Um, because it is that lived experience that is really hard to get across during that consent process. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that you, you, know, you mentioned about the the percentages are really important but actually when it comes down to it as a patient you either have the side effect or you don't you know it's it's really quite black and white isn't it and and it's all about the severity as well isn't it like you're saying you know about the for, for example diarrhea uncontrolled bowel movements as a late effect 
it may or may not happen, but at what severity will it happen as well? So it's very nuanced, whereas the consent forms aren't particularly. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a really difficult one. And, and, and you can't standardise it because one patient's requirements or needs are very different to somebody else's, aren't they? Can I ask, Samantha, what kind of late effects are you seeing um, within clinics? Is there a prevalence of a certain type of side effect? Obviously, I, I understand that depending on where that patient is receiving treatment. But I'm just thinking maybe some of the more generic side effects. Um, fatigue is one that I know Trekstock sees a lot with their young cancer patients and having to deal with um, for a number of years post-treatment. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're seeing, I think, my own, my own clinic, my own service, I'm seeing the majority of patients are the more common cancer types. So, for example, a lot of prostate patients coming through. Um, often, though, it's quite interesting, they might be referred to me with bowel side effects, but also they've got urinary side effects, they've got fatigue, they've got sexual function, intimacy difficulties as well. Um, but I see all patients. So patients who've had gynae, radiotherapy, um, breast patients coming through um, and actually what's really interesting is I share an office with a breast consultant radiographer and a prostate consultant radiographer so my workload is kind of shooting up from them but we're finding a lot of our patients who've had radiotherapy for breast cancer are um, experiencing discomfort and pain in the months and years after their radiotherapy so that's, that, that's um, quite a lot of my patients at the moment they are often fatigue is often a problem but it's not always the main reason why they're referred through it's kind of something that they talk to me about when they come through um and and yeah patients are often referred with one thing but when you talk to them they've got lots of other things going on as well i think that's quite a key point is the the multitude of issues that can arise for anyone because, mm. for example, breast cancer patients only having surgery and radiotherapy, they might not get that emotional support because it's such a quick pathway. It could be surgery, three weeks later, radiotherapy, five, five appointments, finished, and then they don't have a follow-up. They might just have a mammogram, which might be in six months' time. But in that in-between, there's so many different issues and problems that can arise. How, I don't know, what's your view on sort of mental health and psychosocial problems within late effects? It's, it's really, really important. Um, it, it is really, you, you know, you've, you've actually put that really clearly in terms of that pathway for that, that breast cancer patient. And that, when you say it quite so starkly, it sounds awful, doesn't it? Um, I'm seeing patients who have got lots of psychological concerns, um, still coming to terms with a diagnosis years later. The impact that's had on them, they feel guilty. So they've been cured of their cancer, but nobody's been able to help them. They haven't got cancer, so no one in oncology can help and support them. They feel bad for talking about their concerns with their doctor who has actually given them that treatment. Um, psychosexual issues, concerns as well. Um, yeah, it's really, really important. And that's one of the skills that, that you really need within this kind of service delivery as well, is how to support patients with that. So, um, you know, that advanced 
practice in, in psychological support is really important, but also building pathways in the service so that you can refer on to specialists as well. Join us, RadChat, at Oncology Professional Care, an award-winning event for the whole oncology community, returning to the Excel Centre in London on 23rd to 24th May 2023, a multidisciplinary and multi-professional event which breaks people out of their professional silos by delivering free CPD certified education for all healthcare professionals working in oncology. Joe and I are excited to have steered and influenced the programme as part of the advisory board with support from key organisations such as NHS England, Macmillan Cancer Support, Bopper and more. There are over 130 plus sessions of carefully curated content focused on the whole patient pathway across five dedicated theatres. Keynote speakers, living with and beyond cancer, early diagnosis and screening, clinical excellence in surgery and therapeutics and advanced cancer treatments. There are many reasons to attend, such as discovering cutting-edge developments in cancer treatment, understanding how genomics and personalised medicine can become part of the bigger treatment options, make sense of an evolving policy landscape direct from the National Cancer Team at NHS England with keynote address from Dame Callie Palmer. Gain insight into what's happening in early diagnosis and screening to improve early detection of cancers with sessions on fit tests, HPV vaccination and targeted lung health checks. There are some specific focused clinical sessions for 2023 on head and neck cancers, blood cancers, breast cancer and bowel cancer. One of our favourite aspects from RadChat is that you'll be able to hear inspiring patient stories along with their real life experiences of living with and beyond cancer. If that isn't enough, you can join the hands-on hub and enjoy interactive, practical sessions to bolster your technical skills, as well as visiting the pod box with us here at RadChat. Visit the event website to find out more, and we look forward to seeing you on the 23rd, 24th of May, 2023 at London Excel Centre. If you're taking some of this baggage on, how do you look after yourself? Especially with the mental health side of things. It's a really good question, actually. Um, and I was talking about this this today. Um, it suddenly hit me after I'd been doing this for a while that I was seeing all these patients who were really struggling with quite significant debilitating effects. Um, you know, I had a lady who had to use her child's potty while she was out because she couldn't control her bowels. Someone else who couldn't take a child to school. Somebody else who can no longer have an intimate relationship so their marriage broke down and it suddenly hit me that actually it's me and my colleagues who'd been switching the machine on and treating these patients so actually giving them the radiotherapy that's caused all these awful problems um so i get clinical supervision uh through work which is really really important Uh, i've got an amazing group of colleagues that that we talk to um but it's also you know the patients themselves will also they'll they'll give you all of that but then they'll also say but actually I don't have cancer and I'm really grateful and I'm really grateful to the team and it's really important to sort of hold on to that um and the fact that we're doing something really positive and proactive and the information that we're gathering will hopefully feed back into pre-treatment and planning and technique changes to improve things in the future um but personally I've got two kids, so they keep me very, very grounded. <laughs> um, and I crochet. I'm a, I'm a lockdown crocheter. <laughs> so um, it's learning to switch off, isn't it? And I think that's the thing with being a therapeutic radiographer is actually when I first qualified, it took me a long time to learn to leave work at work and not bring it home with me because you do get emotionally attached, don't you? And I think sometimes that 
that's perhaps what makes us good at what we do. So um, it's learning to make sure you do detach from that. Samantha, you mentioned the project that you're involved in and also collecting data. How important is that for a service? I'm just thinking about um, lots of healthcare professionals who might be setting up interventions or services um, and have no no idea of necessarily where to start. But I always say, you know, for the students that I'm supporting with um, service development is you've almost got to start at the end. How are you going to prove what it is that you're actually impacting on? What are you doing as part of your project and what specifically are you kind of using as a tool to to quantify it? Where to start? That's a really good question because in the current climate, you can't any longer set up a new service or implement new practice um, without having the evidence to back that up. And also you have to have funding. So we don't work anymore in a department where we've got enough radiographers to say well you can go off and do review now um, which is what happened all those years ago um, we need funding for that radiographer to do that so in order for our late effect service to continue after the two years we need to put in business cases to the commissioners to get funding um, for that so um, although you know the patient experience is paramount isn't it improving quality of life reducing impact of symptoms and we know that's what we do. We know patients love the service, but that that isn't enough. So we're having we're collecting data to try and show that we are cost saving um, or cost efficient. So we're collecting just so much data. Um, so we're using already validated tools. We're looking at uh, patient activation measurement. We're looking at quality of life tools. We're using EORTC. So we can take baseline measurements and then measurements again when the patient's discharged so that we can show that there's there's an improvement. But also we are um, going to be looking back at whether we're reducing hospital admissions, A&E visits, visits to GPs, inappropriate referrals, reducing the number of times patients come in and see a colorectal specialist. Um, whereas actually they could come into a late effect service and, and that colorectal specialist could be seeing a two-week wait person. Um, so, so yeah, so lots and lots of data because unfortunately we have to prove our worth in order to get funding for the service to continue. When I hear from patients about some of the diagnostic pathways that they've been on because people didn't necessarily recognise that it's a late consequence of treatment. Yeah. Um, I can easily see how we can save the NHS millions upon millions of pounds, but <laughs> it's, it's proving it, isn't it, and having that data available. Yeah, it is proving it, and we're hoping that we can go back and look retrospectively at the patients that we're seeing so that we can see what they've had beforehand. But it's, you know, it's a really, really, really difficult task. But that's why education is so important. And we talked about educating and informing patients, but also other healthcare professionals within, not just within oncology, but also outside of oncology, because these patients are popping up all over the place. They're popping up in colorectal services, in gastroenterology, in dermatology, um, all over the place. They're back and forth to their GPs. So I'm working really hard locally to um, engage with GPs, educate GPs, that kind of thing. Um, because it's the only way we'll, we'll be able to make a difference, really. It's again about 
awareness of radiotherapy. Yeah. We are a really important modality in cancer. I like get I think we get on our soapbox all the time about this, mm-hmm. but people just don't recognise what we are. Actually, you know, fifty to sixty percent of our of a cancer patient pathway, you know, they'll have radiotherapy at some point. That's the importance. I've gone to A and E to see, you know, like a patient who's come in only to hear that, oh, they're gonna send them for this and this and this and I'm like, they're on they're having prostate radiotherapy at the moment. That's why they have loose like, you know, loose stools. This is why they've got some bleeding, etc. And they think, oh, we didn't know that. But that is worrying, exactly as Joe said. It's just we're we're wasting time, money, and it's not the patient's job to tell us. It's our job to know that. But I think this is where I would love to see therapeutic radiographers be relied on a bit more going into A and E, working with AOS, so acute oncology. Yeah. Just need it. Just like sometimes we're literally just next door to A and E or, you know, mm-hmm. below them. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree, absolutely. And I've had the same experience. I've been called to other parts of the hospital or, or, or wherever to see patients who have got something going on and actually say, well, this is their radiotherapy. They're actually on radiotherapy, but because our systems don't communicate with those of the rest of the hospital, no one knows they're on radiotherapy. The patient didn't think to say, um, you know, and, and I, I remember being called to see a patient who'd had breast radiotherapy years and years ago because apparently she had a radiotherapy burn which is a term I hate anyway, but actually she'd got um, skin nodules, disease recurrence. Um, So there's a massive lack of education and training, but historically therapeutic radiographers have not been very good at shouting about themselves and pushing themselves forward. So um, everything that's going on now is is amazing because we are learning to be a bit more confident and push ourselves forward a bit more, I think. So Samantha, what impact is it that you think you personally have on patients' lives, but also in your role as a late effects therapeutic radiographer? Yeah, huge. I mean, I think I alluded to that earlier, didn't I, when I just said some of the examples of, of stories from patients. Um, it's it's life changing. Some of these patients with late effects are just are just living with awful pain, awful symptoms. Um, either no one listens or no one knows what to do Um, and actually even with quite simple basic advice uh, practical management sort of lifestyle changes we can make a huge impact on patients quality of life and how they manage their symptoms so I um, was in clinic one day and the person outside said to me that the patient had walked into my room looking really sad really hopeless you know sort of just their whole demeanour was really, really quite low. Um, and they walked out smiling, looking like they had hope. And that's the difference. Um, yeah, it, it really is. And, and we look at patients within the service as a whole person. And I said earlier that sometimes patients are referred for, for bowel symptoms, but actually we don't just talk to them about that. We ask every single patient who comes through what matters to them. So they may have been referred through for for you know uncontrollable diarrhea but actually what matters to them is that you know they can't have an intimate relationship with their partner because they're worried their bowels will open and that's what's important to them so that's what we look at that's what we address um and the feedback from patients is amazing it's really lovely we've talked about obviously the wider oncology team so i've spoken to a few people in southwest so i know the southwest service as a whole is amazing you've got the same referral form which I just wanted to highlight, that's really important. But 
for other oncology professionals you know working along the pathway how can they maybe support our patients or just patients in general to manage the consequences of treatment yeah that's a really interesting question and i think whilst the patients within oncology there's quite a lot we can do um, in terms of informing patients preparing patients just making them aware that if these things do happen it may well be their radiotherapy um, but one thing that we're finding is that a lot of our patients who had treatment a while back no longer sit in oncology at all. So it's not necessarily oncology professionals who are, who are seeing them because they don't any longer have cancer. So, I mean, I think my, my feeling is that we need to be having open and honest conversations throughout the whole patient pathway with, with patients. And that's us as radiographers, that's the doctors, that's the nurses, that's the physios, that's everybody who's seeing patients. And that needs to go from prehab, consent, on treatment, post-treatment as well. But increasing education, increasing awareness on behalf of healthcare professionals, but also linking in and liaising with the community and other healthcare professionals too. So working with GPs. Um, you know, as an individual, I'm trying to set up training and development um, within, within oncology, within the hospital, and, and within uh, the community as well. So it's, it's really about making people aware, I think, and aware that the service is there and just shouting about it so that if a healthcare professional, be it in oncology or not, comes across a patient, they know that they can refer them in. So, um, like you said, across the southwest, we've got the same referral form, same referral pathways, but I can accept e-referrals um, via the website from, from GPs or other healthcare professionals. I've been known to accept a nice letter as well on the odd occasion. <laughs> Samantha, how do you engage with GPs and things? I'm just thinking, um, just from my experience of working with Macmillan, you know, trying to access healthcare professionals can be really challenging um, just because they are ultimately as busy as everyone else and actually getting them an opportunity to have some time off to attend a CPD event um, and vice versa. You know, you say you're doing all of this educational development. We're, and obviously running clinics. How do you find time? It seems like there's so many challenges. Yeah, there are lots of challenges and it is really difficult. And actually, it's doing it a little bit at a time, bit by bit. So, it, I mean, engaging with GPs is really, really difficult because, as we know, they're incredibly busy. They're, you know, they're really having a difficult time at the moment. So GPs don't have time to come to an educational day and listen to me talking like this. Um, what what we believe they want is to know where to find the information. So locally in Gloucestershire, we, uh, GPs have got a website called GCare. So if they want some information, they go onto that, that platform. So we've put information about the effects on that with the referral criteria, um, contact details, um, and we, they have a weekly bulletin. So I make sure that our late effects service is in that periodically so that it sort of flags it up. We're looking to create some kind of um, webinars and do some um, presentations that are recorded so they can be easily accessible as well for them. Um, but it's just slow and steady. You know, it sounds like I'm doing a million things in a day, which obviously no one has time for. But it's just chipping away at this constantly um, and asking people what they want, because you might think that GPs would appreciate a whole day of, of, of study, but actually they can't get to it. So that's not necessarily practical for them. Where do you think the future of late effects is? Oh, 
definitely sat with therapeutic radiographers. <laughs> the future of late effects, um, I think, hopefully, is going to go from strength to strength. I would like to see all radiotherapy departments offer a late effect service. It's in the radiotherapy service specifications. It's really important. We we're treating these patients with radiotherapy, we're curing them of their cancer, and then they have no quality of life. Not all patients, but a significant number of patients, and so therefore we should be obliged to be supporting them. So the future, I think, is, is that, is what we aim for, that all departments offer late effect service, that therapeutic radiographers are vital to the services, but we can't work alone. It's really important we work collaboratively across pathways with other healthcare professionals, um, and utilise all sorts of specialties. Everybody's got something to bring, you know. Um, working with non-oncology specialties, I'm working really closely with dermatology um, because a lot of patients who've had significant skin reactions during treatment suffer with late, late skin changes, so head and neck patients. Um, so, so working with dermatology, um, which you wouldn't necessarily think would be related to the radiotherapy late effects. Um, oh well, I've, I work in Macmillan now, so I know all these corporate buzzwords like influencing. How are you influencing managers to see this as a valuable thing? So if you want all the radiotherapy departments in the country to have it, you know, how do we do that? How do we influence them? Posh word. That's a very good question, and actually, it's quite pertinent because today I did a presentation to the national radiotherapy managers meeting. So talked to them for half an hour about what we're doing, updated them on the pathway and talked to them about the importance of late effects and actually it generated a lot of questions um, and the feedback was great and I think, I don't think anyone would disagree with us, would they? To be honest, I don't think anyone would say, well, no, 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 we shouldn't be doing that. It's the difficulty is the funding and building a business case and finding finding a pot of money to, to support that. But... I would argue that actually it should be a normal, routine, acknowledged part of the patient pathway. Um, but that's a big sea change, isn't it? Samantha, if you could help influence or guide prehabilitation advice to lessen the consequences of treatment, what would you want to be implemented? Because I definitely see within the role that I have and, and some of the pathways that um, I'm kind of privy to that we do not utilise prehabilitation at all. No, you're right. And actually, within my department, there's there's just over the last couple of years been a prehab team recruited. So they were setting up um, prehabilitation firstly for our, our prostate patients. So um, we shouted quite loudly and got involved in that because how how you necessarily prehab a patient in general to be uh, to have a good level of health and well-being to, before they go into cancer treatment is slightly different to how you might want a patient prepared for their radiotherapy so we needed to input into how our prostate patients were preparing to go through prostate radiotherapy with bladder filling and rectal emptying and you know wind and, and all of that kind of thing so it's really important that we get involved in that because actually if we can prepare our patients really well we can deliver really accurate treatment and then we can minimize late effects and that's where we come in because what we want to do is feed into that pathway so that we are making a difference in terms of changing techniques 
um, and improving improving outcomes like that. So I think it's it's really really important. And I think particularly for pelvis patients, I think pelvic radiation disease is is, is recognised. It's it's acknowledged. We know that our pelvis patients are experiencing this. So we need to sort of get patients started on their pelvic floor exercises really early. We need to get them to drinking plenty of fluids. We need to get them. Oh, you talk about dietary advice and, and it's really, really difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, fibre or no fibre, what kind of fibre? But it's looking at where the patient's starting from and helping them um, manage that. So it's not one size fits all, really, which I think is where that needs to be taken into account with prehab. So looking at an individual patient, seeing where they're starting from and how can we improve things? How can we get their pelvic floor functioning really well? How can we improve their bladder control? Um, you know, what's, what are their bowel movements like before they even start their radiotherapy um, and then go from there. I always say to my students, you've got to make sure that your patients are practicing their pelvic floor if they're having their pelvic region irradiated. And they're like, yeah. what? What are you talking about? But it, yeah. it helps with everything, it's, doesn't it? Yeah, it's so important. And as I work more in late effects, it's massively important for, um, you know, not just for, um, for women. You know, traditionally we think of pelvic floor exercises to maintain... Um, the vaginal muscles but it's all about um, maintaining control over your bowels passing wind passing mucus um, being able to control whether or not you know you're passing urine or not whether you've got time to get to the loo yeah really really important for all of our patients gynae prostate colorectal everyone and physio input as well from for prehab in terms of our breast patients head and neck patients as well really really important so sam we're near the end of the podcast um so we get to our top tips what top tips would you like to give our audience whether that be patients healthcare professionals students okay i had a thought about this and i think it's it's basically from a healthcare professional point of view you need to be open with your patients you need to talk about it you need to seek information for yourself. Um, if you're a patient and you think you might be experiencing radiotherapy late effects, ask for a referral. Um, you know, you may not know, your GP may not know whether there's a late effect service in your area, but ask. Um, the Pelvic Radiation Disease Association are collating a list of late effect services across the country. For students, I think, be aware, this is an area you need to have an understanding of. Um, as time passes, patients are going to be more informed about radiotherapy late effects because of the work that we're doing now currently. So within the profession, our students, our newly qualified radiographers need to be making sure that they're raising awareness and improving support for patients. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Samantha, for coming on. Um, it's brilliant to kind of talk about late effects and it's something that obviously Numan and I have a particular passion in. So thank you so much. Um, thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been Numan Jelka Anson and Joe McNamara. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. 
Our next guest feature will be Naomi Clatworthy and they'll be discussing uh, their role as an acute oncology nurse consultant, a supportive and palliative care lead and a UConn's co-optive board member. So thank you all for listening. UKIO Conference is back June 2023 in Liverpool for three days and is fully refreshed to respond to feedback from delegates to reflect the world we're living in today. Prices are lower than ever and start at £75 to access the full Congress and all content. They've changed the programme to focus on specialists for the generalist and top tips content rather than highly specialised topics from previous Congresses. There are more sessions on service optimisation, education and workforce. Something that we love is research and it's at the heart of the programme. There's more proffered papers, sessions to present your work, expert sessions on refining research proposals and power pitches and a dedicated research hub. If all of that isn't enough, there are themed hubs in the exhibition on service delivery, clinical case studies and innovation in action, along with more hands-on and technical workshops. Industry partners have added valuable education content on their stands too. You can also check out CPD outside of the programme in case of the day activities and view posters. There are streams aimed specifically at masterclasses for trainees, making UKIO the place to come for value for money exam prep, along with sessions throughout the programme aimed at students. The programme is available to view at www.ukio.org.uk, where you can also register, and there are more than 100 plus sessions to choose from. Make sure you use the code RADCHAT25 on the booking page. And don't forget to come and check us out in our RADCHAT pod box. See you on the 5th to the 7th of June 2023 at ACC in Liverpool.